Today's focus is on the will of God. Paul actually prays for the will of God. So let me ask you, how many here are confused about God's will for your life? Or how many of you know someone that seems to be confused about God's will or are sitting next to someone who's confused about God's will? Our culture today is aligned to oppose anything that has to do with our faith. They are set up against us to destroy our worldview and our voice in the society. Our church is giving mixed messages today as to what it is to know and to follow God's will. And so here we come to this struggle that the church in Colossae had 2,000 years ago. They had the exact same problems that we have today, even more so, and probably to a greater extent. So Paul prays for them. And we're going to look today and see how he does that. So, first of all, let me just talk about the setting of this, right? It's around 60 AD, give or take a few years. Paul's under house arrest in Rome, and he's in the middle of God's will, because Jesus told him that as you testified of me in Jerusalem, you must testify of me in Rome. So he knew he would be in Rome. In Rome, what does he do? He writes four prison epistles. Three of them we'll be looking at in the next three weeks. So he doesn't waste his time in jail. He uses it for everyone's benefit, especially the church in Colossae. So to give you a little bit of an idea here, this is kind of uh, the map in biblical times. Whoop, sorry. That's not working. There's Colossae over there in what's today maybe southwest Turkey about 100 miles away from Ephesus and Philippi. The other two letters we'll be looking at the next few weeks. Paul's way up here in Rome. Jerusalem's way down there. I'll give you an idea of um, what, what the layout looks like. The uh, church there is a house church. It's very small. It's newly planted. It's a very small town with very few Christians in it. Uh, big difference from some of the other surrounding cities around it. The church is mostly Gentile. And they're fighting a lot of the heresies that we're fighting today. There were people there that were talking of Jesus, but not really giving him the preeminence. They were giving him lip service, but in effect, their words were dethroning him. They were giving him a place in their lives, but not the supreme place. They were using Christian words to describe their faith, but those words all had different meanings. And if you've ever spent any amount of time with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or anything today, it's exactly the type of people they are. They're very much bound up in humanism and men's traditions, now and back then. Uh, legalism, rules, regulation, rights, observances, all those things that you had to do to be a Christian or to be saved. And Paul writes this letter to say, no, let me tell you about who Jesus Christ really is and what it is for you to understand how to know him and serve him. And one of the big things of the day, which we'll see a little later on, is what's called Gnosticism. There was a group of people that felt they had special knowledge, spiritual insight into God. And this spiritual insight was something that only they knew and only they could teach and only they could share the wisdom that truly pertained to Christ. And one of their fallacies was they thought that Jesus never came in bodily form, that he was a spirit only, and we need to learn everything and see everything in a spiritual realm. So Paul counters very quickly and says, no, God was pleased to have Christ dwell as him in full deity in bodily form. Comes back right away and says, don't believe him. And know this, there's a universal nature to the gospel. 
It's freely available to everyone. There's no hidden knowledge. We can all know him equally, and all of us are on equal footing when it comes to Christ, and we are complete in Christ and nothing else. So understand that as the setting. And Paul then writes this letter saying that the spiritual fullness is not found by any formulas, any disciplines, any rituals, but it's by giving Christ the preeminence in our life. And so he writes this epistle to show how Christ is above all things, before all things, and all things consist in Christ. And therefore we need to focus on him, learn him, study him, so that we can understand how it is that he would have us to live our lives. So Paul writes with other people. He starts a letter with we. Um, we're not sure, probably Tychius and Onesima, a few people we know uh, that were with him at the time. This is a church that Paul never visited. He is not familiar with these people personally. A disciple of Paul's named Epaphras was the one that actually went and planted the church, and it's news from him that the Colossian believers are doing well. So let's look at the, the setting here. I know this is a little small, but I want to back up to verse 3. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 today. But this gives you the background. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So here he doesn't even know them, but he writes to them. And he writes to them with joy and with love and with thanksgiving. He doesn't even know them, but he prays for them. And so here's his prayer in following verses here, 9 through 14. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with all the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what can we learn about Paul's approach to prayer? First thing is he prays with thanksgiving. Did you see that right in the beginning? We always thank God, the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. How many of us are thankful in our prayers? How many of us start out with thankfulness in our prayers? Or how often do we come to God because we think we lack and we need to beg or we complain about things that aren't going our way instead of going to him and being grateful for what we do have? Have any of you ever seen something that looks like this? Children, have you ever done this? 
Christmas morning, a whole bunch of presents, and he's like, I didn't get the bike I wanted. No skateboard under the tree. So he's miserable. This guy gets this red and white sweater and says, uh, thanks, Mom and Dad. Uh, obviously, he's not thrilled with it. How should we receive these gifts? Maybe his parents have a purpose for this, right? Like, maybe his parents are afraid the girls are starting to like him and this will repel him. Um, maybe he's just landed a spot as Waldo in the school play, you know, or whatever. The parents know why they give him the gift. And, and so instead of pouting and being sad on Christmas morning, we should be joyful for the things we got, not for the things we didn't, or for the things that maybe have not met our expectations. And Paul says, look, I want to come first with thanksgiving. Yes, I'll pray for your wants, your needs, your struggles. He said, but I will not forget to be thankful in these things. And what he prays for is ongoing concerns. He hears of a good work happening in their lives. And so he says, well, I'm so thankful to God for the good work that's happening in your life. I'm going to pray for some more of it. I'm going to keep praying for things to keep going better for you. How often do we do that? How, how often do we hear that some great thing happened to somebody in our family, our church fellowship or somewhere, and we say, thank you, God, for doing that in their life. Do some more of that for them. Thank you for that great Sunday school class that Dan did today. Use him to teach more like that in the future. What a blessing it is to have his gifting. We thank you for that. Most of our prayer requests are to pray for somebody's illness. I don't see too many prayer chain requests coming across saying, Somebody just led somebody to the Lord. Let's pray God continues to use him in that outreach. you know. Or let's, let's pray for that person to continue to grow in their faith. There's so many good things going on in this church, and we take some of them for granted. Say, Lord, thank you for all the baptisms, all the conversions, all the new members. Pray you continue to bless us. Thank you for the preaching of the word. We pray that it increases more and more and reaches more people. This is what Paul likes to pray for continuously. He prays positively for positive things. Another thing he does, though, that we can do is praise for others. We're talking about the will of God today. How many of you prayed for the will of God for somebody else besides your children when they're wayward? We always thank God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We pray for you. You think about how Paul doesn't even know these people. He's, he's not met them, he's only heard of them, and yet he focuses on praying for them. These are like his spiritual grandchildren, but he still continues to pray for them. How often do we pray for people that we don't even know? How many of you have prayed for the people in Nicaragua that our team is going to minister to this week? Thank you. We should be. I don't know those people, but I'm praying for them. I was studying that this week, and it came on the news that two teens were lost adrift in the ocean someplace, and the Coast Guard had given up on them. But the father came on, and he said, I am confident in my God that he will protect my boys and, and bring them back. And, and he put out an appeal for prayer. And I prayed right then. It's like, Lord, I don't know these two boys, but there seems to be something you're doing here in this, and I prayed for them. And I don't know if any of you did. And after the Coast Guard gave up all hope, they were found by a fisherman. And then these two kids got out, teenagers, said, we were praying and praising God in the boat. We knew that we were safe in his arms. 
And this is nothing short of a miracle that we can only give him credit for. Keep praying for those two boys that their witness will increase. Maybe they'll make a movie out of that. That will be something great, right? It was wonderful to hear that testimony, to pray for people who we don't know. When we pray for people we don't know, we we express our church fellowship. We enlarge our horizons, as it were. We truly become world Christians, and we get the focus off of ourselves. I loved it when Teresa came up with her her Nazarene letter N, right? This is a mark that's being put on homes in the in the east, far east over there, where people are being killed because they're associated with Christ, the Nazarene. We need to pray for them. Someone in the church followed up with a letter saying, "I agree, and I want you to support them as well." Good stuff, folks. We got to keep that going. In D. A. Carson's book, he wrote a little blurb here. It's a little bit um, long, but he says when we we pray for God's will, so often we we pray for. God, I need to to know something right now. Should I get married? Shouldn't I? Should I take this job? Shouldn't I? Should I live in this town? Shouldn't I live in that town? What should I do? And we're so focused on ourselves and what the will be for our lives. And Paul's praying something completely different here. It's like, start praying for other people and the will of God in their life, and some wonderful things will happen. But he then says this, we Very frequently, we are inclined to use the expression, the will of God, to refer to God's will for my vocation or for some aspect of my future that is determined by impending choice. None of this is intrinsically bad. There are many ways in which the Lord does lead us, and we should not despise them. Nevertheless, this focus is often quite misleading, perhaps even dangerous, for it encourages me to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my future, my vocation, my needs. And that is often another form of self-centeredness, no matter how piously put. Worse, it expunges from my consciousness the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of the Lord. Our prayers, oh, I'm sorry, our prayers may be an index of how small and self-centered our world is. That zing anybody? Kind of got me. Um, how do children pray? Usually fairly small. Dear God, please keep my sister from hitting me anymore and let my parents get me the puppy. And bless mommy and daddy, amen. Right? Very small circle of self-centered prayers. And Paul's saying we've got to start praying bigger than that. We've got to start looking outside of our own immediate needs, our own circle of influence, which is our primary source and, and reason for prayer. I'm not saying not to do that. I'm saying that he's saying look a little bigger, enlarge your coast a little bit, think outside of what you would normally pray for and see what, what God might do. So we, we pray with thanksgiving, we pray for others, but then he also shows us that we need to pray with persistence. He says here that we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with a knowledge of his will. Not stopped praying for you. Now, Paul uses this in a lot of his prayers when he says that I pray for you always and he wishes that all men should pray always, that sort of thing. But he's not saying 24-7. And he's not really even saying either that we should be walking around all day, you know, just at every opportunity taking the, you know, taking the chance to stop and pray for something. He is saying that he has regular set times of prayer, and they're disciplined, and they're scheduled, 
And in those times, he always prays for these people. Every time I go to prayer before God, I remember you. I pray for you. I am disciplined in my approach, and I make sure that I pray for you. Now, some of us have some sort of prayer list. These are good, or prayer journals. We write down the things that we always pray for, and then we write down things that maybe we pray for every now and then, or or something comes upon our hearts and we should pray for it. Paul's saying this is a good thing to do, to have some structured way of approaching prayer. D.A. Carson gives a lot of great examples in his book of how he actually does it and the ways that he has a, a perpetual prayer list and a sort of a temporary, like the immediate need prayer list, and how he works through that on a very regimented, regular basis. And uh, I know I've tried this a bunch of times in a lot of different ways, and I've tried recording answers to prayers and journaling and things, and, and at, at times I've, I've waffled back and forth, but this is a call once again to get regimented in your prayers. Spend some time. I think it was uh, John Piper said he's, he's thankful for Facebook because now no one will have an excuse before God for not having enough time to pray. We always say we're too busy to pray, but we find time to do other things. And he said, make it one of your priorities to find the time to pray continuously. This is an important thing. And he said, there's some things we should pray for continuously. Didn't Jesus pray for his daily bread? Give us this day our daily bread. We, we might at best give thanks for a meal when the bread comes, but how often do we get up in the morning and say, Lord, you know, give me food today. Give me clothing today. Give me shelter today. Forgiveness, strength, wisdom, understanding. We can never have enough of that. It should be on our prayer list for every day. Praise. Uh, pray for increased knowledge like he's praying here. Pray for you know spiritual maturity in us and in other people. Pray until he answers the prayer, and then you can stop. We can pray for traveling mercies for the people in Nicaragua. When they come back next week, we don't have to pray that anymore, right? There's things that come off your list eventually too, but there are things that stay on it for almost ever. So he, he prays continually, but then, and this is maybe probably most important, he prays with purpose. There is one purpose in this prayer. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. That is the entire focus of this prayer. Everything else is a precursor to it or an explanation of what that purpose is. But he said there is one thing that I want to pray for you in Colossae, and that is that you will continually be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That's his approach to prayer. That's what he wants to do. And it's interesting that he starts out at the beginning of it for this reason. So that makes you go back to, well, what's for this reason? What came before this? Well, if you look before in what we read earlier, he says that he's heard that their faith in Christ, he's heard of their love in Christ, which are both rooted and grounded in the hope they have of someday being in heaven, that those are wonderful things that are just beginning to blossom in Colossae, and he's heard that the gospel is beginning to spread through them. So for this reason, I pray that your faith and hope and love and spread of the gospel will continue. He sees what's happening there, and he says, I'm going to pray that continues even more. And how am I going to pray that? I'm going to pray that you, as you grow, come to know God's will better. The gospel is working and you're growing, so we'll pray to continue the spread of the gospel and for your growth. It's interesting that there is a a cyclical pattern. For this reason, we have not stopped praying. 
So he, he hears of their faith and love and hope and the gospel spreading, so he thanks God for it. It's the first thing he's thankful of. We're thankful that we've heard this is happening, so we're going to pray for it more, and then we're going to go check up on you again. And we'll get word back from you, and we'll pray again. We'll do the cycle again. Very specific purpose. Now, next time when he gets the report back from Colossae, there might be something different going on, and he may change the focus of his prayer. But right now he's praying very specifically for this purpose, that what they've heard in them will continue to develop in them. Very specific prayer. How often do we think specifically about people's needs? What is it that someone we know needs very targeted, purposeful prayer for? And how often do we go before God on a regular basis with thanksgiving for the person and the work that's happening in their life and pray persistently for that thing, for that person. Paul's prayers are not generic. He has a very specific target in mind when he prays. And it's often difficult to discern what to pray for people. And this is where Paul says that you're not alone in this. We don't often know how to pray, but we have aids given to us in our prayer life. And the first one is the Spirit of God. He says here that they pray continually that God will fill them with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, if you read this the way I do and the way D.A. Carson does, it assumes that the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives is what constitutes the means by which God fills us with the knowledge of his will. Did you get that? The wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives is the means by which God will fill us with the knowledge of His will. We receive the knowledge of God's will through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. And he works in us in two ways. One way, he certainly works as an intercessor on our behalf. Right? Um, many of you know Romans 8, 26 and 27 where it says we do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that cannot express, groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So we get on our knees and and I start praying for someone and I'm not sure what I should be praying for, And the Holy Spirit then takes that prayer before God in a language that can't be uttered in words, and the Holy Spirit prays God's will for that person, God's will for that situation. We have a Holy Spirit that is able to work through us and intercede on our behalf when we're not sure what to pray. There's times when we just don't know what to pray, but it's wonderful to know that the Holy Spirit is praying with us and for us and with us and for the person or situation we're praying for. And we know when the Holy Spirit prays, it will have to be according to God's will because he is God. He understands far more than we do. But the other aid that we have in our prayer that the Spirit uses is the Scripture. How often have we prayed with his sword? Right? The sword of the Spirit, the tool, the book that the Holy Spirit wrote, is how he works in the warfare that we're in. And prayer is warfare. Uh, I remember 
pastor friend of mine used to say, get on your knees and fight like a man. You got a problem with somebody, pray for them and God will straighten you out. Right? It's hard to fight with someone when you're on your knees, isn't it? And this is what he's saying is we need to, we need to take this word of God that the Holy Spirit wrote that outlines God's will for us. Here's what you need to understand. The will of God is revealed in this book. It's not that we have to say, teach me your will, O Lord, but as the psalmist says, teach me to do your will, O Lord. It's in the book. The Holy Spirit needs to show us how to live according to it, how to understand it and purpose uh, be purposeful in what we do because of what we've heard. Have you ever been in prayer with the Scripture and been convicted either to do something or stop doing something? The Spirit has a way of bringing you in line with God's Word, which will bring you in line with God's will. And it needs to be a regular practice that we pray with the Scripture. There's the old saying that sin will keep us from the Word, and the Word will keep us from sin. You spend enough time in this book, the Holy Spirit will show you the things in your life that needs to change. And then we need to pray for the Spirit to walk worthy of the calling that we've been given. Sometimes we read the Word and we get convicted of something that someone else needs to change. Has that ever happened? Ooh, word of knowledge for that person. Be a little careful there. I once heard someone come to someone and tell them, the Lord spoke to me and said this about you. And the man's response was brilliant. Well, the Lord spoke to me and told me you misunderstood him. <laughs> we have this uh, you know, tin cans with a string kind of thing where we can talk to God. It's a nice thing to talk and let him talk back to us, but then let him take the strings and talk to the other person. It seems to be better when we let him do the interceding because he's going to work in their life, bring the right situation in their life so that eventually they'll wind up hitting the message that God wants them to have, maybe not the one we'd like to give them. Two things happen when we pray with the Scripture. One is our theology increases. Your level of understanding the nature and person and works of God will change your prayer life. If you're a hyper-Calvinist or someone who totally believes in the sovereignty of God and you're a fatalist in your approach where it doesn't matter what I say or do because God's going to do it all anyhow, why pray? On the other hand, there's people who are called open theists who believe God's kind of standing up in heaven, wringing his hands, waiting us for, her, for us to pray so that he can do something on our behalf. If your theology is bad, your prayer life will be bad. So praying in the scripture with the scripture will certainly help your prayer life. The second thing is, we can learn from other people. We can see how Paul prayed, how David prayed. We can see how Jesus prayed. You can see the prayers in Scripture. You can see the prayers that were prayed. There were 650 prayers recorded in the Scripture and 450 of them answered. I think there's a lot to learn about prayer if we study prayer itself in the Scripture with God's help. So you want to know God's will? Study his word. Study it. I know this might not be what you wanted today. Oh, gee, I want to get my whole life squared away today by knowing God's will. But God's will is for you to come to know his word better, to come to know him better, and improve your theology better. I found a, a quote from Paul Bucknell. Most believers never found the secret of discovering God's will. 
They are too caught up in, on their search for their own will. Paul was a great missionary to Taiwan and a church planter, and every place he's gone, he has found that so many people are so myopic, so self-focused when they look at the Scripture and look at God that they're missing the big thing that God might have for them. So we have an approach to the Word. We have the aids that are with us, the Spirit, but now we have an aim in this prayer. And, and this is pretty much Paul's desire in all of his prayers, that they may please the Lord. He says in verse, verses 9 and 10, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. We were created to bring glory to God. And Paul wants to see us live that out in our lives. And whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we say, whatever we do, bring glory to God. That's his prayer for the church. That's his prayer for them coming to understand the will of God better, is that they will come to please Christ in every way. As they know God's word and live God's word, they will please God. And then he says, repeat the cycle. Let me give you kids an illustration. How many of you like soccer? Nobody likes that. Okay, we got soccer fans. I grew up playing hockey. I didn't know anything about soccer. But I figure, okay, this late stage of life, it's not too late to learn. So I go and get myself on a soccer team. Got the uniform, start growing the man bun. I got the $400 sneakers or cleats or soccer shoes, whatever you call them. I'm in a big game, scores tied, close to the end of the game. Coach puts me in. So all of a sudden, I see a guy charging down close to my goalie. He's going to score, so I do this. I kick the guy. That's what you do in hockey, right? Forget about the ball. You take the guy out. So I kick him. I kick him pretty good, and I stop the guy from scoring. And then this guy in his black shirt comes up and holds out a red card. So I take it from him and say, thank you. And he says, no, you're out of the game. I go, what do you mean I'm out of the game? Just because I made one great play? He said, no, this is not how the game's played. Then he puts the ball down. And says, here, take a free kick on the goalie. I go, whoa, what's going on? The guy kicks and scores and we lose. And I'm sitting here going, what's going on? And so my teammates, of course, are praying for me. Um, my fans don't seem to be praying. My parents are a little embarrassed. Um, and then I get to the sideline and there's my coach. Now, he's a little concerned, to say the least, right? So the coach comes to me and gives me this book. It's a book of soccer rules and regulations, and it's written by this guy named Clive Gifford. And he says, Clive is a very good friend of mine, and I want him to spend some time in this book with you because you need to learn about the rules and regulations of the game of soccer. And so Clive takes time with me, teaches me what a red card is, teaches me what a penalty kick is, teaches me all the things I need to know about tackling in soccer. And so what happens? I go back out and I hopefully play the game a little better. Stop kicking people in the face a little more, you know, a little less. I, uh, I stop kicking them less. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, and, and all of a sudden, as I keep spending my time with Clive, I'm beginning to please my coach. Yes, I can play you more and more. And as I get to know the rules real well, I am now free to have as much fun as I want playing my soccer game. I met with a, a friend of mine last night who, who teaches in a seminary, and I said, tell me how to know the will of God or how to do the will of God. He said to me, 
learn what God's will is in the Bible, and then go have fun. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you can obey the Word of God and understand all that He tells you to do in here, then what you will want to do, what will please you, what you will enjoy in life is doing the things that He wants you to do, that He wants you to enjoy, the things that will please Him. Do you see the analogy where there's so many Christians that look like Christians, but they have no knowledge of the Word of God? They're going into the game for the first time, and they're screwing up pretty badly. And he says, get back with the rule book. Take a little time with it. Work through it. Allow people to coach you. And complete the cycle. Complete the cycle of you started to learn. We're going to thank God that you're learning. Take a few more rules, learn them well, practice them, and we're going to keep the cycle going. So the result of this, Paul says, there's four observable signs. When you're beginning to walk a walk that's worthy of the Lord, you will bear fruit in every good way. You will grow in the knowledge of God that you may have great endurance and patience and that you will joyfully give thanks to the Lord. He saved us for good works. He's foreordained good works that we should walk in. And as we continue to get to know him better and know his will better, we will begin to work in those walks, walk in those works in a way that will bring joy to him and joy to us. As we spend our time in the word, we will get to know him better. We will grow in our knowledge of God. We will come to understand theology better. As we work through this cycle, we become patient and we endure. Apostle Paul is in prison and he's patient and enduring and taking that time to write epistles for us to encourage us. He understands that sometimes the trials are the things that God uses to teach us his will. And so we become patient in that. And then when Jesus sees all these virtues in us, he is well pleased. But the, the last one, if you noticed, giving thanks in all things, that takes us back to our approach at the beginning. Being thankful. The cycle completes when we get to a place to where we ourselves are thankful. He gets us all the way around to the end of it. And this is where he spends the last few verses here, is on why we give joyful thanks to God. Have you ever seen, or do you know, a a miserable Christian? We'll talk about that in a second. There's a lot of them out there. Paul says, that there really isn't a reason to have a bad day as a Christian. And here's the reason why we give thanks. Because the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you stay focused on the gospel, on what God has done, taking us who were dead in trespasses and sins, destined for his wrath, and made us alive, and and saved us by grace, and brought us into his kingdom of light, where we will forever live with him in joy forevermore, sharing his glory as co-heirs of Christ, how can we have a bad day? And yet, how many of us know miserable Christians? Joy. It's kind of an oxymoron there, isn't it? The two words don't go together, miserable and Christian. Somebody said that miserable Christians should be sued for false advertising when they preach the gospel. 
If people come to you and they're complaining and they're miserable, here's what you do. Take out this scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you see how studying the Word of God will show us God's will? There it is. There is no reason for you to be complaining and groping and miserable. You should be rejoicing always. You should be praying and giving thanks in all circumstances. Just take that one verse this week and pray it over and over and over again with the Holy Spirit and see if it doesn't change your attitude a little bit on how you walk with the Lord. And this is the idea. Find verses like this. They're plentiful in the Scripture that talk about the will of God and understand what the will of God is. And then the thing is, teach me to do your will, O Lord. Teach me to actually live this out. Times are hard now in the U.S. We're living in a declining city. Our society is aligned against us as Christians. There's heresy everywhere, even inside the church. And yet Paul prays that we would come to know the Scripture and that we would focus on pleasing Christ. And he also assumes that that's impossible unless there's a growing and spiritual grasp of what God's will is as it's found in his word. I... um, I get a newsletter from New Yorkers for Constitutional Freedom. And theirs came in this week that was very appropriate when I was studying. I just want to read something to you that's a little long, but see if it doesn't fit exactly what we're talking about, about countering our society with the knowledge of God's Word. I know it's small. I'll read it. Many Christians may wonder how we should respond to the rapidly escalating corruption in our culture and government. The answer is simple. We must display moral clarity and moral courage. Now more than ever, Christians must be prepared to defend our faith and the teaching of Scripture and to apply them within a cultural context where those teachings are increasingly viewed as alien. If Christians do not have informed consciences or cannot communicate effectively about what we believe, our faith will soon become increasingly marginalized. Too many Christians are confused and deceived about issues that are very clear in Scripture. Also, we must display moral courage. It is not enough to know the truth. We must care enough about our neighbors to speak the truth in love. In light of the litany of bad news, it is easy to become disheartened. However, our outlook as Christians cannot change. Our hope was never in the United States government. Our hope is not in men either. Our only real hope was and is in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's Paul's summary. The knowledge of God's will is not an end in and of itself, but has as its goal such Christian maturity that our deepest desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how D.A. Carson ends this chapter. Our pursuit of God's will is to get us to a place to where we walk worthy of the Lord and please Jesus Christ in all that we do. And we get to that place by spending time in prayer, in the Word, with thanksgiving, with persistence, with purpose for other people, allowing the Spirit of God to work in us so that we can bear good fruit, increase in our knowledge, increase in our patience and endurance, and become joyful Christians. And when that happens, pray some more. Kick the cycle off again. Pray for people you don't know. That's a prayer God will answer. That's a prayer that will please Christ. 
because then we will be praying for God's will. Amen? Let's pray before we go to a time of communion here. Father, sometimes your word is so simple, and yet we make it so complicated. We know if we seek first you and your kingdom and your righteousness, that all these things in our lives will be added unto you. We know that you have a plan for us uh, to prosper us and not to harm us. And we know that you're working all things together in our lives for the good. We can be confident that you will complete the good work that you've begun in us until the day of Christ Jesus. And yet, Lord, we so very often are confused and we let the world know we're confused when we shouldn't be. We should be coming to know you better. We should be coming to know what we believe and expressing it clearly in love. We should be counter to the culture around us, and we should spend our time encouraging one another, praying for one another, and that we might please you. So I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would help us all to learn from Paul and to take these practices into our lives, and that it may genuinely change us for your good and for your glory, we pray. Amen.